So it's about 15 or 16 years ago now that a uh, young restaurant manager and aspiring restaurateur uh, by the name of Will Guidara was entrusted by a, a, a famous restaurateur and chef and restaurant manager um, to take over as general manager a pretty good but still kind of meh two-star restaurant, it's in New York, um, by the name of 11, 11 Madison Park. It was a brasserie, so it's French style, and in 10 years of him being a general manager at this restaurant, he took it from a two-star restaurant, according to the New York Times list, which is kind of the industry standard, especially in New York, um, from a two-star restaurant to a four-star restaurant and number one absolutely best restaurant in the world in 10 years. When he was asked in an interview I listened to recently on the podcast, The Next Big Idea, which I, it's very good. It's not a Christian podcast, but it's, it's really good if you're into like tech and innovation and all that kind of stuff. He was asked, how did he do that in 10 years? And he, he said, through unreasonable hospitality. Unreasonable hospitality. He's written a book about this uh, experience and what, what unreasonable hospitality means. And yes, that is absolutely where I got the uh, title for the sermon this morning. And he talks about a few different amazing pictures of hospitality that just illustrate how beautiful it can be. Uh, the first is... Um, uh, there were four foodies that came into the restaurant one time, and as he was uh, clearing their plates, uh, he learned and, and overheard that they were disappointed because they had had all these amazing restaurant experiences in New York, and they were flying back home later that afternoon or evening, and they had checked everything off their bucket list except the thing that like kind of started the conversation for them in the first place, which was to get a really good New York hot dog. And so Will Guadara, he... he uh, he describes how he sprinted down the street a few blocks away, which somebody running in New York is weird anyway. Um, if you've been to New York, you know, it's like something, somebody's died, okay? He sprinted down the street and went to what he thinks uh, he saw as the best uh, hot dog stand in the city, and it was, he passed two others on the way to get there, bought the hot dog, came back, and after um, spending a significant amount of time trying to persuade the head chef to let him serve it, um, he, the chef divided it into four plates, dressed it up with some sauerkraut and mustard, and he took it to the, uh, the table with the bill and said, hey, I just want to let you know that I overheard you say that you were really regretting not being able to have this experience, so we made it happen, and here's where it's from, and we hope that you come back to New York. And he said they freaked out. It's just a hot dog, Right. But there was something more going on underneath him than him just like going to get something to check off on a bucket list, right? Second story he tells is of a, uh, of a family who was visiting from Spain, and it was, in, it was in winter, and the kids were in awe. They were just like looking out the window because they had never seen snow before. And the snow is just coming down. It's this, this restaurant borders uh, Madison Square Park, right? And so they're just watching it with wide-eyed wonder. And so at the end of their meal, again, when he brought the check, he says, hey, I just want to let you know, there's a black limousine outside waiting for you. In the trunk are two sleds that we purchased, and this limousine knows to take you to Central Park so that you can go sledding at night in Central Park. The last example I want to share is, is probably my favorite 
Uh, everybody, like everybody, you know, you go to a restaurant, the server's like, are we celebrating any special occasions, especially if it's a nice restaurant? It's a regular question, right? And the couple said, yes, actually, we are, um, uh, we're getting married tomorrow. And uh, so this is our kind of last night, our last date before we, we get married. And the servers asked them questions like, oh, cool, like, how did you meet? And, you know, what was that like? And they were talking about how, oh, my gosh, you know what? Our first date was at this amazing coffee shop. And it's always been special to both of us, and now it's special to us as a couple. It's the one thing we're missing. We wish, like, we just don't have time to go there. We were, we were wanting to, you know, have a breakfast date like we did on our first date. But we weren't going to have time to do that before going to the courthouse in the morning. This couple had their meal as usual, went home, went, uh, arrived at the courthouse the next day, and sitting on the steps was a man that they recognized as their server from the night before. And in his hands were two cups of coffee from the coffee shop where they had their first date. And he said, didn't want you to go with that. Have a wonderful, amazing day and congratulations. Now, at this point, I'm hope that those are as heartwarming for you as they were for me and just like almost magical in a sense, right? What in the world does that have to do with the passage that Michael just read? Right? David's mighty men going into an enemy encampment and drawing well water, like there's a drink there. Does that correspond to the coffee? And is that the real huge stretch for hospitality that, that, that Brad's making maybe? And the answer is yes, but not only, it's not a stretch, Okay. This week, and we are jumping ahead, this is, as Michael noticed and noted, that, uh, oh, it's in 2 Samuel. And at the very end of 2 Samuel, what is going on? Why are we jumping ahead when last week we were in 1 Samuel and we're a whole book now ahead? We're jumping ahead for two reasons. One, this builds on last week's sermon when we were talking about friendship and what gospel friendship looks like. But it's also helpful sometimes to know where the end of the story is going, to know how to understand what is most important and what is happening in the midst of the story presently. And so this story, this is actually taking place, or it's being recounted actually, at the end of David's reign, he's reflecting on all of God's faithfulness throughout his life, and he's also memorializing and and, and kind of articulating appreciation for how God has used other people around him in ways that doesn't get addressed in 1 Samuel, but pops up at the very end. And so this is taking place around the same time of the, of the passage that we're going to be preaching on next week. But at the top of this list, of this kind of hall of fame of things that David is recounting an appreciation for, are his mighty men or chief men, depending on how, you know, your translation. It's also referred to as the 30 this, this group of 30, or actually 37, because it probably shrank and grew at various times, like this, this was an elite unit in David's army of key leaders, his personal bodyguard, the, the, the brothers in arms that he trusted more than anything else. They were friends who, str- who stuck by him when it was unreasonable to do so, maybe even foolish. This passage takes place, it's smack in the middle of a a much longer passage that has other examples of the 30 um, doing these heroic acts, and it's incredible. It reads almost like a Marvel comic book in some ways, right? But this one is unique. There's something different about this, and it feels it in the language. It's, It's less 
impersonal. It's far more personal than the, than the others. It feels like less of a historical account and more of like a telling a story around a fire. And it's about David specifically. It's not about the general defense of God's people in just some kind of battle or, or, or context of war. It zooms in on something that's clearly meant a lot to David. And it meant a lot because it is one of the most beautiful and powerful examples of hospitality in all of Scripture. Okay. So I'm saying this is, this is an example of unreasonable hospitality, and we're going to break down those two words. The first being unreasonable. Um, I'm, I'm going to define what I mean by unreasonable hospitality and, and talk about unreasonable risk. I know I'm using the same word to define a word, and that's not okay. I couldn't think of a better word. Unreasonable, it's just, it's just better, okay? So unreasonable hospitality includes unreasonable risk. And what I mean by unreasonable risk is a willful disregard of personal risk for another's sake. Willful disregard of personal risk for another's sake. Notice I did not say, instead of unreasonable, reckless risk, or just using the word reckless at all, because reckless is something that you do or a posture or an attitude that doesn't have a purpose necessarily, and may even be selfish. Like you're, it's, it's an uncaring attitude. Unreasonable risk is a willful disregard of your personal risk, not or of your personal risk for another's sake, not another's personal risk for your sake. That's the complete opposite, right? Unreasonable risk then, it's like what Paul describes when he says um, in the New Testament, it is a considering of others that are more highly than yourself, right? Considering of others more highly than yourself. Now, there's extraordinary examples of unreasonable risk, like someone who's running into a burning building or taking a bullet for somebody. You know, like these are extraordinary risks that Hollywood, right, revolves around. But there are ordinary risks, unreasonable risks as well. Like in your workplace, speaking up to defend someone knowing that it may move the crosshairs to you. Giving, giving time or energy that you just don't have right now. It could be as in the early days of planting the table when we had uh, financial supporters near and far trying to help us get this church off the ground. Um, when a, a, a financial supporter texts me out of the blue at just coincidentally right when we were trying to figure out how to make ends meet as a church, hey, I got laid off from work this week and while praying felt convicted that God wanted me to tithe my severance check to the table. That's very unreasonable. If you've ever been laid off, you're like, I agree. Okay? That's ordinary, unreasonable risk. At this time, David is on the run from Saul. They don't, they're in a cave. They don't, they're not at home. They're not, they're not anywhere. They don't even have a roof over their head. It's rock and earth. And his hometown of Bethlehem is currently occupied by Philistines, by the enemy. His home and if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you know how David went from like discarded and, and severely underappreciated son to outright functional orphan two times over. And so his childhood home is occupied, and he's thinking to himself like, man, like, I'm in a cave. I don't even have a roof over my head. There's no plumbing for sure. I don't even think, I don't even know if plumbing was a thing back then, actually. Well, whatever the equivalent was, there was not even that, right? 
And David's like, man, I would kill for just a, a cup of water from my childhood well. He was musing. He was just like thinking out loud and probably in a pretty low place at the time. And his, his mighty men, his chief men, the 30, they, of course, knew that he was just musing. He was just talking out loud. He, they didn't think that he was saying, this is, what, this is your next mission. Like, they're, it's, it, they're not operating with this kind of blind zeal or loyalty. But in the midst of that, like, I'm a pretty practical person. At that moment, I'd have been like, you know, I don't care how good your well water is, which, by the way, well water is nasty. I'm sorry. It's not worth the lives of men. Like, why would we do this? That's what makes it unreasonable. It's not worth it. Now, as I'm talking about this and I'm using examples of unreasonable risk, you're probably thinking like, yeah, but what if I just kind of feel on the urge of burnout all the time? Like, what about, what about healthy boundaries? Like, isn't that, is, I thought we were supposed to be wise in this as well. What does hospitality look like when we um, are still struggling to put up boundaries? I want to validate this, that, that question, because I think that's a very reasonable and a good question. But I also want to just, I want to, I want to, talk, I want to sit here for a second, because I think we rush too past part, too, too quickly past this, right? What I'm describing is not a problem to fix, it's a tension to manage, right? Some things are problems to fix that like, we just, we just gotta make this change and, and decide to do this, right? Some things are attention to manage that like, you know what, depending on circumstances, it's gonna be different, but I wanna kinda hand you some, some tools and ways of thinking about this that help you navigate that, right? The first is this, is we live in a world right now that is saturated in language and pressure toward self-care. Right? It's even a joke and maybe a trope right now. Well, I'm just, you know, uh, I need to go to Dairy Queen and get a blizzard because hashtag self-care. You know, we uh, want to, you know, we'll use self-care as a reason not to hang out with people who are difficult uh, or we are like, we just don't really like, even though maybe we should probably love them. Right? There's all kinds of ways that this environment we're, in, we're saturated in is distorting our perspective on that. Right? Self-care, like put it this way, self-care is a six trillion, with a T, trillion dollar industry. There are all kinds of financial incentives to ramp up nonstop urgency and offer an infinite number of strategies for self-care because it's profitable. Okay? And in that environment, it's very possible that part of the reason why you're burnt out is because you're trying to do so much self-care that it's exhausting you. I know that sounds weird, but especially when we live in a world that is constantly changing, and if you are on social media at all, you are constantly bombarded with things that are going to increase your anxiety and make you not feel like you can take a deep breath, okay? It's just important to know that that is the environment that we live in, right? The second is kind of tool as you're managing this tension is, is motivation, and it's so often the case, our motive actually matters in the midst of this, right? Ask yourself this. Are you taking unreasonable risk out of duty or delight? Now, let me explain those in a minute, but I also want to add a third, okay? Because there's a third option. There's a third way, because you knew this, because you've heard my sermons before. There's always a third way, right? Duty is doing something because we're supposed to do it, but we don't necessarily want to do it. We don't necessarily like it or enjoy it, but we do it out of duty. Delight, at least in the way that we use the word, 
is doing something because we want to, right? It's, it's the feeling of delight, of, of wanting to do something. And the problem with using only these two categories is so often the case, and you don't have to amen out loud to this, but I, you are not alone if you do, that if you wait until you want to do something that you know you should do, you don't ever do it, do you? I could be just projecting. It's okay. I want to introduce a third word for you. Devotion. Devotion may start with duty, but it has the intention to delight. It makes delight not a feeling or an emotional state or reaction. It is actually the aspiration of duty. The aspiration of duty, not because it, it is an approach and a posture toward duty that says, I'm not doing actually this because I have to. I'm doing this because I want to want to. That's a completely different way of approaching this. Right? Lastly, formation. This is really cool. David's chief men, these heroes that he's memorializing in Scripture's Hall of Fame, they didn't start out that way. If we go back to about when this time uh, is, is referencing and talking about when the mighty men came to join him, if you look at 1 Samuel, not 2, 1 Samuel 22, at this cave, it says this, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul or you know, discontented, that's what that means, gathered to him and he became commander over them. And there were with them about 400 men. In other words, we're, we're starting to get close to Christmas, Right? If it's PSL season, then it's going to be start to be like Charlie Brown Christmas season. It's going to start to be like, we're getting there. We're not, not trying to rush it. You don't put up Christmas lights until after Halloween. That's just like God's law, okay? Wow, I guess I didn't realize I was going to be not preaching to the choir on that one. Okay. Um, right? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. The only good version of this movie is the original claymation one, right? You guys remember the Isle of Misfit Toys? That was David's original group and army, right? David's mighty men started as misfit toys, God's misfit toys, and that's amen, right? They became mighty through devotion. Not just devotion to David, but to a devotion to what God has called them to over the long term. Because there's no way to do that with this idea of unreasonable risk if, God has, if, if you're not also trusting God to cultivate that delight, to provide for you, to protect you, to care for you, to love you, to be steadfast in his faithfulness toward you. Saturation, motivation, formation, okay? That's unreasonable. Let's talk about hospitality. Because hospitality, you guys have heard me use the definition of relational and creational generosity. Well, I'm adding a third on here because three points in a sermon are even better. Um, Three-dimensional generosity. We're going to trace this in the, in the narrative that Michael read, okay? The first is relational generosity. These mighty men, they knew David. They knew him. They knew his heart. They knew how much he had sacrificed uh, to do the right thing, to serve Israel. He, has, he, was, he had left his home. They came to serve him because he did not fight against King Saul. 
he left and took himself out of the picture as a means of trying to keep Israel unified and together, right? They wanted to bring comfort to their on-the-run, homesick leader. Hospitality is more than just mere generosity because it is birthed out of knowing. It is birthed out of knowing. And honestly, it doesn't even have to be tangible. Um, several months ago, maybe even a year ago, I, I don't even remember what, what brought this on, but I remember there was this, uh, Hannah and I were having this conversation like while we were getting ready for bed, and um, there was something related to the table that I was like agonizing, agonizing over, and I didn't know, like what was the right decision? Like, how do we do this? Like, wow, I don't feel like I even have any kind of course of action, never mind the right one. And I was like struggling, and it was really bothering me. And at one point in the conversation, Hannah, you know, she stopped what she's doing. She kind of turned around, she just looked at me, she said, you're a good man. You're a good man. If you're a guy, you probably know this is coming, but like, I, I just wept. I wept, I wept in relief not just because she had said that, but who it was coming from, right? Because Hannah, she knows how hard I try. I try real hard, okay? Sometimes I often try too hard because I don't actually believe that I am beloved even if I screw up or I fail. I don't believe sometimes, I may, be, I may in my head, I, I will acknowledge this, but in my heart, I don't actually understand that God could love me as a son even when I don't act like it, when I act like an orphan. But secondly, when it comes from your wife, when it comes from your spouse, it comes from someone who knows everything about you, including not just how hard you try to do the right thing, but also and especially how and where you do not do the right thing, <laughs> how I have not been a good man. I didn't deserve that. That's what makes it generosity. That's what makes it grace. And the thing about this kind of not believing the gospel uh, hamster wheel I was describing, in my, like that goes on in my own heart, the, the, the way that that gets stopped, the way that we get out of our rut and the cycle is broken is when generosity is given, especially and most and primarily when we don't deserve it. Because we don't have to keep striving anymore, right? Okay, that's relational generosity. Let's talk about creational generosity because it doesn't have to be tangible, but when it is, it is amazing, right? Creational generosity is more than symbolic. It is, it's often tangible and, and helpful. Speaking of somebody who knows me well and, and continuing with Hannah, like one of the coolest gifts I've ever, give, I've ever been given um, was a, uh, a Hampton Beach... Amazon ordered breakfast sandwich maker. It was like 20 bucks, right? And you're like, really? You need, somebody needs to buy you a good gift. Like, no, you don't understand how amazing of a gift this is, is because it is the perfect interception, intersection of everything about me that is loves to be very effective and efficient and also very hipster, okay? Because in a breakfast sandwich maker, it's amazing. You just put like an English muffin bottom on the, t on the bottom and then uh, a slice of Canadian bacon and then pepper jacks, cheese, half a slice, full slice is too much, okay? Then you put the, the middle part down and you crack an egg into that 
And then you put the top of the English muffin on top of the egg, you put it down, you hit a timer for five and a half minutes exactly, and glory. And then I also have like a little mason jar of, of uh, sriracha and mayo mix, so it's a sriracha, mayo, and it's, it's delicious, right? Hipster and efficient at the same time. It's glorious. It's so glorious that we gave that one to our neighbor so I could have the excuse to buy one that made two at the same time, Okay. I love breakfast. It's my favorite meal because I grew up eating bre- like that, That's always been my favorite meal, right? How many of you were offended earlier when I said well water is nasty because you grew up drinking well water? Awesome. I am sorry, but not sorry. Um, I've heard, I've been told that well water, if you, if you grew up drinking it, it's not just that well water in general is better, but that well water. Because when you go to a different place, it's, it's different soil, it's a different... The water got there differently. There's all kinds of different ways, and it just doesn't taste the same. Nothing can replace that love, that childhood uniqueness, right? It's it's like fingerprints, right? There's no, there's not, the well in Bethlehem, there's not going to be any other well like it. There's nothing that can be close and replace it. There's no second best, right? David was given this tangible thing that was far more than just symbolic. It was far more than just relationally encouraging. It was encouragement that he could taste. It was encouragement that he could taste. Um, Also, during the early days, I don't even remember when this was. I was trying to think about it this morning, uh, of the the table. So it was like probably almost seven years ago now. Um, In the fall, I remember um, another friend and supporter of ours just happened to be in town, and and we had an event going on, like, later that night, and he was um, in town, and he was available just in the morning. So he came over, we were hanging out and having breakfast, and I did not have the breakfast sandwich maker by then, unfortunately, or otherwise I would have made that for him. But we're catching up, and, and, and he was like, how's it going? And I told him, like, sorry if I'm not mentally present, but, like, I'm not... Like, I'm kind of stressed out. We've got this event going on later tonight, and I haven't even started setting up for it yet. And he's like, what do you need to do? I was like, well, we've got to rake all the leaves, and that takes forever, and clean up the dog poop so nobody steps in it. Um, like, there's like a half a dozen things like that. He's like, okay. And then we kind of moved on talking about other things. He was like, and, and as he was doing it, he said, hey, man, I'll see you later. I'm like, yeah, man, see you later. And he said, no, like a little bit later. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, don't worry about it. I'll see you later. I'm like, okay, that's weird, right? Um, but I trusted him. <laughs> a couple hours later, I noticed um, that what I thought was the annoying uh, you know, neighbor's leaf blower blowing in their backyard nonstop was actually him in my backyard with a leaf blower he bought at Jack's to clean up all of the leaves in our backyard. And he insisted on cleaning up the dog poop too right? It's not just symbolic. It's tangible. It's helpful. It actually accomplished something, right? Creational generosity. Lastly, let's talk about sacrificial generosity. And this is going to sound very similar to what I was saying earlier about unreasonable risk, but I want you to hear the difference, okay? Um, Will Guidara, in this podcast I uh, was listening to, he said something that just kind of like struck out of the blue. Like I, I, I rewound it, wrote it down because this is so awesome. He says, I do not believe that you can accomplish anything of extreme significance 
if you're not creating something that you yourself want to experience, that you yourself want to receive. Okay, the reason why it struck out to me is because you might be like, why? like that sounds like the golden rule, right? Like, yeah, kind of. The golden rule is an ethic. It is a duty. What he's describing is bringing in the substance of delight in, in a devotion posture, right? And so what he's talking about when he's describing this is a sacrificial generosity that, that is a kind of costly skin in the game, a costly skin in the game. I love talking about my favorite gifts, and so I've got one more for you this morning, okay? Um, my stepdad, growing up, uh, has, has, has had these amazing uh, glass vintage cocktail stirrers. Now, if you know me, you know I, I love cocktails, especially pre-prohibition cocktails, and that's where my hipster, hipster bread really comes out, right? And these, these cocktail stirrers are from the 40s, maybe the early 50s. It's, um, it's unclear. And I have, like a good stepson, constantly joked over the years, like, hey, you're going to put that in the will for me, right? He has these, co- these okay, I, I need to describe them in more detail because you don't under- appreciate how cool these are. Um, they're hand-blown glass, right? And they're about yay tall. Oh, I, I meant to bring one so I could just show you. This would be so much easier. But, but, um, and on the top is a small, like, mallard duck with the green head and brown body and even, like, the, the white stripe around the neck and, um, and, like, little yellow feet. And it's, it's tiny but incredible craftsmanship, right? Um, and I've joked, like, hey, when are you going to give me those? Um, he's very aware that I want them, Okay. One year over the summer during, like, when it was near my birthday, when my mom and my stepdad came out to visit, he, he said, like, hey, on Saturday, we're going to Denver. I'm like, okay. My, my parents are homebodies, so, like, you want to leave the house? Never mind, drive 40 minutes to Denver? Okay. So we go to Denver, and he doesn't tell me where we're going. He doesn't tell us anybody where we're going. And we're going into, like, the River North District. And if you also, if you know my parents, they're not just homebodies. They're, like, kind of freakishly scared of, like, the city. Um, and so if you know where River North is, like, it doesn't look terribly safe. So we go into the River North District, and we come to a warehouse that, upon walking in, you realize is actually studio space for, a, like, several artists and craftsmen including a glass blower. And he said, I'm not giving you my glass stir sticks, stirring sticks, but this is so-and-so, and he made some for you. And I found out that he had done the research, like looked up this guy, talked to him on the phone, mailed one of these fragile, like priceless things so that he could have a physical one to get the measurements of and everything. And and had them made at not a, an insignificant cost. He has some skin in the game, right? This is sacrificial generosity. And you know what's incredible? It was interesting. You may be like, Brad, I've been over to your house for cocktails before. You've never used these. I'm like, I know. <laughs> because I found, I love them so much that I found that I only break them on, out on like what if it feels like a really special occasion. I don't waste them. Nothing personal. I'm not wasting. It wouldn't be a waste on you either, okay? I'm just saying, like, that is the default posture of my heart because of how much I love them. Similarly, when David pours out the water that his mighty men just 
heroically and foolishly drew from the well that's surrounded by Philistines, he's not wasting it. He's recognizing and cherishing the sacrificial generosity and the costly skin in the game of soldiers he probably knew were dedicated and committed to him and loyal to him, but he had no clue how much they loved him, not out of duty, but out of devotion. This, is, this would have been a powerful act. It would have been shocking for him to dump out this water, not yes, on its own merits, but it was especially shocking because it is the opposite of what King Saul has been doing. We talked about this, how, how God through Samuel told Israel, if you get this king like the nations, like you're asking for, he will be like the nations, which means that he is going to take from and use you and your resources for his own pleasure, because that's what kings do. And so when David dumped out that water, it wasn't, it wasn't wasteful. More, even more than that, it was a demonstration of his royal hospitality that he would be exercising upon becoming king himself. That was why it was so powerful, right? One um, commentator I read for this sermon, he, he summed it up. He said that in that act, David turned great human devotion, notice that word devotion, from himself to the Lord. David turned great human devotion from himself to the Lord. Let me ask what may sound like a dumb question. Why did he do that? Was it because, like, David would just want to do the really Christian thing, right, and be like, oh, praise God, right, just kind of like in an offhanded, casual way? No. It's actually because he recognized that there's no way these mighty men would have been able to pull this off if God didn't do it. It's even explicit. If you, if you read back from one verse, from what Ma Michael read this morning, the end of verse 12 it says, and the Lord, and this is, this is the summary statement of the mighty men and the heroic acts that are being recounted up to this point. It says, and the Lord worked a great victory. The Lord worked a great victory. It's, it, that phrase is actually in there twice to emphasize and to remind. And less, like in case you didn't know, these heroic acts, the hero of these, of these stories, of these these vignettes were actually not David's mighty men. They were a mighty God. That God was the one, Yahweh, the Lord of steadfast love and faithfulness. It was actually Him that delivered the well water. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. Like, whatever unreasonable hospitality we are able to offer is because we have actually received God's unreasonable hospitality first. Right, that's the one thing that I, I didn't quite like about that quote from Will Guadara, right? He said, I do not believe that you can accomplish anything of extreme significance if you're not creating something that you yourself want to experience, that you yourself want to receive. How about, how about, how much more so might that be true if we have experienced and received it? How much more... How much more so if what we have received and experienced is actually the supreme act of unreasonable hospitality ever offered, period, full stop, no qualification, right? I'm going to pack this in a second, 
But I, I want to focus about on, on like how David understood this act, like what was going through his heart and mind in the moment. What he understood to have happened was that God himself orchestrated, protected, sent, and delivered his men to bring him a cup of water. Do you think that God had better things to do? If you're like me, the answer to that question is probably, if not absolutely. But God didn't think so. Does God have his priorities straight? Like, is God being stupid? Is he being wasteful? Is he being foolish in this? No. When we are stressed out, when we are carrying all the stress to be doing all the things, we're supposed to change the world, we're also supposed to self-care, we're also supposed to like vote right, and holy crap, is that harder than ever every freaking year, right? We have to do all of these things. We have to make all of these decisions. We have to be faithful and loyal. And, and you know what? God's like, you could use a break. The God of the universe sees you. He doesn't just see you, but gives good gifts to you. This isn't a gratuitous waste of resource, resources. It is a prodigal and extravagant expression of God's love for David. I'll be honest. I have, like I, when we first started the table... I was excited about naming the church the table and like we're all on the same page on that and everything, especially because that meant like a whole lot of people are going to come who are really good at and passionate about hospitality. And that is not what has happened. It turns out that I, we all have much more in common than I thought, which is that we long for an experience of hospitality, but often have not experienced it in this world. We need a divine host. We need someone from outside of the mess that we have made of all of these things to remind us and to, to actually not just to remind us, to love us even when we forget that as Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to good gifts to, good, give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? That God is actually excited to do it. That he loves to do it. But also, as part of all this pressure that I was trying to describe and can never fully encompass how much, like there's this nascent pressure and atmospheric pressure in the world to, to perform, we, part of that is that we are expected to do so on our own, right? In Acts 2, verse 42, one of the most beautiful summary statements of what the church is and what the church does is this, it says, and they devoted themselves, referring to the early church, devoted themselves, right? To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. David's Old Testament mighty men is the New Testament church. It is your church. It is this church. It is all churches. It is the church. It is here. God's unreasonable hospitality for all people comes through and is is applied and experienced through his people, through the unreasonable hospitality of his people. And so as I'm saying this, like I just want, like I have very intentionally been talking about how we can offer, offer our hospitality for everybody else because I want you to feel the pressure of everything that is on our shoulders in this day and age. And I want to tell you that if you are thirsty, 
welcome. If you're like, I can't do this, good. None of us can on our own. If you are struggling to bear up under that pressure, I'm serious about this. Would you tell somebody next to you before you leave? Nothing has to happen today. Just say like, hey, next time, can you ask me how this is going? Start there, right? Maybe you're homesick. Maybe it's not for a place because you love Colorado. I mean, come on, it's awesome, right? But maybe you're homesick for a season of life that you remember being a lot easier and a lot more fun than this one. Maybe you're homesick for something that you've never actually experienced before. I guarantee you, living in a place where everybody tries to scratch that itch by moving here, you have some people who know what that's like sitting right around you, right? Maybe you are too weary to keep fighting, to keep swinging the sword, and it feels that way in a fallen world. Join a community group. Tell Maria at the, at the, at the welcome table this morning, like, ask for help. There are people who want to help you, not on their own, but together, right? Because the bad news, right, is that we can't do it on our own, and that's because we've never been made to do that. It's impossible. We bear the image of a, trinity, of, of, of a Trinitarian God. One God, three persons. That means to bear God's image means we are made for community. We cannot survive this world without it. And not just any community, but God's ordained greenhouse institution for shelter and sanctuary in a world that is very often inhospitable. Okay, I'm going to say this one more thing, and then we're going to move into the Q&A. So if you have a question, I have sufficiently done the, the, the third way Jesus juke in the sermon, as well as some practical applications. So we've covered that. Now is a good time to send in your questions, right? Uh, in a little bit after the passage that we're talking about this morning, in verses 24 to 39, it actually lists all of David's mighty men by name. It just goes through and lists them, kind of like a, like a phone book, right? This is interesting for several reasons, but the most important reason is the last name on the list. The last name on the list is Uriah the Hittite. If you're familiar with David's story, you know that in the time between the passage that, we, that, that I preached on last week and, and the passage that in this week, David has had many victories and a few catastrophic failures that have followed him for the rest of his life and reign and get, get played out in this vicious cycle following it. The first and the worst and the root of all of them was using his royal position to pressure his wife, Bathsheba, into bed and then having Uriah killed to cover up the pregnancy. This is one of David's mighty men who was faithful and loyal to him. Uriah was, by all accounts, there, there is no description in 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel that says anything like Uriah was anything but a loyal and faithful friend. His king was nowhere near as faithful as he should have been, in a very basic way even. Like, don't sleep with my wife. That's a reasonable expectation, okay? Don't have me murdered while I'm fighting for you where you should be on the front line with your army, with your men, instead of back at home in comfort, right? His name is at the end of this list, 
as a loud and unspoken reminder that we need a true and better king than David. And in Jesus, we have not just a a mighty friend, we also have a faithful king. Like Uriah, he was also unjustly killed to cover our sin, but it resolved our sin instead of covering it up. And that happened unreasonably. It was an unreasonable risk of Jesus to do this, right? He has no gain except his delight in us, God's own devotion to his people. It was according to his will, if you remember from a few weeks ago, after his own heart. It was the supreme act of unreasonable hospitality that has ever been offered. I have... Talking about hospitality, so the risk of uh, preaching long is significantly greater than usual, and I'm skipping three points that I can fill out. Uh, if you are interested, you can text, and after uh, the service this morning at some point, I will send you the passages that I've pulled out as examples of, of, of how Jesus was relationally generous, creationally generous, and sacrificially generous on the cross, if you're interested, okay? The point is, that Jesus' own unreasonable hospitality toward us is what we have to taste and see to know that he is good and then to be able to reflect and refract that hospitality first among his people and then among the world. All right, let's see what questions we got. Are you sending out a church email with a link to the breakfast sandwich maker? (laughs) No, but if you ask for it in the Q&A question, I will happily send you the link. Hamilton Beach on Amazon, breakfast sandwich meter. It's right there, okay? Okay, other question. In my modern mind, it seems like the mighty men should have been offered, uh, should have been offended by the dumping of the water. I don't get it. What am I missing? Um, Yeah, I think, yes, I definitely, by this timestamp, had not gotten to that point, so I hope I answered your question. But this was a supreme act of hospitality in return. When David says that it was... um, He was going to pour out the water because he could not drink their blood. What he was saying, he was was saying that their act of love and hospitality was akin to an act, a sacrificial act of atonement. Like it was redemptive to him. His point in this, he dumped it out like the blood of the, uh, the sacrificial goat on the day of atonement in Leviticus 17 is sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, where God's own presence is. It was too holy for him to partake of it. That's what he was saying. Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, I feel like it is, even as I'm, (laughs) even as I finish preaching on unreasonable hospitality, And I I reflect on all the ways that other people have been unreasonably generous to me and these amazing good gifts. I am struck, Lord, by how little I see the ways that you have given good gifts to me. I'm struck by how how much I just assume in the default of my heart that you will give me bad gifts, that you will, that you make your love conditional to whether or not I I behave as your son. But Lord, it is actually because of your son that I belong as your son. And Lord, I I know this with my head and I struggle to believe it with my heart. And I, I, I assume that many of us are there too. 
I pray, Lord, that your unreasonable hospitality would bypass our irrational brains and help us to experience it, to taste and see that you are good. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your, for your generosity to us, and we pray in your name. Amen.